0: The path to becoming a cinematographer is never an easy one. But our guest today is Nancy Schreiber, who took on the challenges in a unique way. First of all, Nancy said multiple times in our interview that she never had a plan B. And that's an interesting refrain because usually you're told as you go into these fields that you have to have a plan B, otherwise, you're taking a great risk. But Nancy was so devoted to her path and committed to her plan that she never made one for whatever reasons, and it worked for her. She started off as a gaffer, but she quickly became a cinematographer, shooting on video of all kinds, film of all kinds, eventually winning a number of awards and having all kinds of success. And eventually she became only the fourth woman to be added to the ASC, the American Society of Cinematographers. Nancy's best advice to me is mostly about her approach. But what's so cool is that she's been omnivorous in terms of mediums. She shot all kinds of film on all kinds of film cameras, but she's also shot all kinds of video on all kinds of video cameras. And she has some really genuinely useful tips about how to approach medium, no matter what it is, because she managed to win awards for like shooting on mini-DV, which is crazy. But I'll let Nancy do the talking. So here we go. What was the sort of turning point early in life where you thought, I want to be a filmmaker, but I want to be in a camera department specifically?
1: Well, it's interesting because I... I really fell into the film business. I have a psychology degree from the University of Michigan, as well as history of art. And I was doing a lot of still photography, but uh, I was starting to make small, very indie films in Super 8 at University of Michigan, not any film school. There really wasn't a film department. There were a couple courses.
0: How did you get your hands on, you know, how did you get the film to do it? And what made you decide, I want to do this? Like, I want to experiment artistically with film.
1: Ann Arbor is one of the first film festivals that was ever around in the United States. It's always been very experimental. It was the era when people were picking up, uh, there wasn't video. Well, maybe there was black and white camcorders. (laughs) Uh, Right. But there was Super 8, and I was 45 minutes from Detroit. Uh, There were a lot of labs then, and that's what we did. I still have uh, my Super 8 cameras. In fact, I did a lot of music videos where we would combine 35, 16, and Super 8 for a long time. This is in the late 80s and the 90s. And uh, so I have a Beaulieu. I have a Niso.
0: A Bolex. Yeah.
1: You know, so uh, I still love it. And in fact, a movie I shot in Super 16 in New York a few years ago, Maplethorpe, was shot in part in Super 8. Uh, Andy Tomoni. Oh, wow. Yeah, Andy Timoners, the director, she's a well-known documentarian. This was her first and so far only narrative film, period film. And uh, we got Kodak on board uh, because she has always shot Super 8. And uh, you know, we would never have been able to afford it. It was an indie um, had Kodak not opened a lab in New York because they had all closed. This is 2017. And by the way, right now, the director's cut is coming out. Film Independent is doing something tomorrow with Andi, and uh, there's a director's cut. So I'm really getting off the subject, but...
0: What's really cool about that is you say you started, even before you did anything formal, you were just shooting on film For while sure. you were at school. Yeah. And then you're talking about a couple of years ago shooting a feature right. on Super 8, <laughs> which is just not what I would have expected that anyone's shooting features on Super 8 these days. So it's really cool. Can you tell me about like what was it like? So you were shooting on Super 8 in 2017.
1: No, it was a Super 16 movie. Oh,
0: sorry, Super 16. I'm. But
1: sorry. there was Super 8, a B roll that didn't have sound. You know, so it was cut in because Robert Maplethorpe, the photographer, lived during a time when it, there was only film. Uh, he shot big, form, large format film, although he started shooting stills with a Polaroid. So that's one reason we were able to convince the producers that we had to shoot this movie, which was from the 60s, 70s, and 80s in film and not digital
0: and the medium was important to the story yeah, in that for sense. sure
1: and the grain wow i mean <laughs> i couldn't believe two things that i had forgotten because you know we shoot so much digital now and uh remind me to really applaud sony for the venice because yeah. um so many of us have been alexa users i mean i've certainly done my share of red movies pan you know panavision uh panasonic i have used their camera for the very high speed but sony venice is a game changer and so many of us who are are we're diehard alexa users are embracing the venice and when uh, did
0: you what was the first project you did on a digital
1: i was looking back (laughs) at my life um I did two movies on the Sony F900 in like 2003. Wow, that
0: was early then. Yeah,
1: it, it was. And I did a pilot. It ended up not getting picked up, but it was for Showtime in Toronto with the F900 in 2006 with Panavision lenses. They outfitted it. And it was a big Showtime thing with Isabella Rossellini and this guy Nikolai—I cannot pronounce his last name—who was a Game of Thrones. Who's very. Oh yeah, yeah, yes,
0: yes, of course.
1: I'm really excited about the fact that it looks good, Uh, you know, because people really were snobs about two-thirds inch cameras and. Yet I did a lot of good work when I didn't have the budget and we were shooting HD. We couldn't afford film. And yeah, it was early. Um, And yet that whole time. So that was 2006 that I did the Showtime movie called Filthy Gorgeous. It was really ahead of its time.
0: But that so you say that was 2003. Am I? Oh, okay. Am I correct that the F 900 was what Lucas was using in like 2002 something on the Star Wars
1: features? Right around that? I, I, I think you're right because I'm looking yeah. at one of these two movies. Uh, it was called The Failures. Um, director Tim Hunter, who had been very well known for a movie, his movie we shot in 2002 with the F 900. No, right. So
0: that's, you were super early we're adopter. Very, early,
1: very yeah. early. But see, okay, let me tell you why this, I was able to embrace this. And I know we're jumping all over the place. So I came up in the business in New York and I really didn't intend to be in the camera department. Um, I right. Had come That's where we started. In. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I moved to New York to follow a guy who, you know, we didn't really, after, after the summer ended, he went back to Ann Arbor and I uh, to be in law school. And I stayed in New York and I got uh, a job as a production assistant on a real 35 millimeter movie. And it was just so, randomly
0: or were you like, I'm definitely pursuing film filmmaking. So. I
1: realized leaving Ann Arbor with my psychology degree that I I'm such an active person. I'm not, I wasn't going to sit on my butt all my life. Uh, I, I do enough therapy with <laughs> my friends, <laughs> and crew members on the go. Right, but sure. so, wh- because I'd fallen in love with filmmaking in Ann Arbor and I'd run a movie theater, uh, this pretty indie part of the Ann Arbor Film Co-op. It was a big film community in Ann Arbor. Yeah. To this day, they still have the, the film, you know, the film festival. When I realized that I was going to stay in New York because I loved it, I answered an ad in the Village Voice and was hired to be a PA. If I could provide a van, and I would get fifty dollars. A week. Well, my roommates had a van, so I gave them the fifty dollars, and it was the scariest thing. Even though I grew <laughs> up driving, I grew up in Detroit to drive this huge van through the Midtown Tunnel, going out to Long Island. Uh, you know, oh, wow. with the while the it was scary, but I did it. But when we started shooting, they were so under crewed and there was, except for one gaffer and the key grip, there were no people in that department. So I ended up in the electric department and the director's brother ended up in the grip department. We knew nothing. (laughs) I just learned it so quickly. And again, because I had still photography background and an art background on art history, I saw that filmmaking, you know, lighting was just where it was at. And I learned so much. And that's how I fell into the electric department. I have had had uh, through those years to be a camera assistant on documentaries, where generally, I would have to do both load mags for documentaries and be the gaffer. But I am a terrible focus puller. And I am instinctual with visuals and lighting and the mechanical film cameras I could deal with, but electronics, oh boy, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, let somebody else deal with that. I just have to know how to, you know, use the menus and get what I need and read scopes, but I can't take them apart. Whereas a film camera, I might be able to and I did some you know, in Africa I remember having to pull an aton mag apart and things like that.
0: I mean if you're loading, you you know even as a loader, you know, you have to do it blindfolded essentially. Right. Oh, yeah. So you know how to oh, yeah. you know how to work around those cameras like you know them very well.
1: Yeah, I did. So but what happened was when I wanted to start shooting it was very clear, I don't always talk about this because I, you know, yes, I am a cinematographer who happens to be a woman, but since all, everybody always asks, and there were so few <laughs> of us then, um, I couldn't get any work. I, I'd i come out of narrative and commercials in New York, working my way up to gaffer after a number of years and was gaffing successfully and with no problem getting work. There was a Bob Fosse Broadway commercial that a cameraman named Mark Obenhaus, a director cameraman, I'd worked with a lot as a gaffer, had gotten that gig to shoot Pippin um, Uh on Broadway. And it was a big number with, you know, dancers and lights. And since I came out of lighting, I designed the lighting. And what happened was I was not invited to dailies. You know, it was all film. And Mark said to me, Nancy, I own an Eclair NPR. Go use it. And also Bobby V, uh, Bob Vera Cruz, who owned film trucks, which was I was his best boy. I was an electrician with him. He loaned me lights, and I started shooting 16 to build a narrative reel because. And then I had to start shooting documentaries because that's the few women that were shooting in those days were only shooting docs. And uh, it was very hard to get a reel. I made my own film uh, documentary to show I could shoot handheld. And it was really tough going. As I said, I, I didn't have a problem as a gaffer because the DPs would always hire me. And when I started shooting, fortunately this little movie called "Possum Living just did very well. I was a director camera person and it was in Museum of Modern Art new directors, new films. It was a big deal. I got a great review in the New York Times and I made two other films but you know people didn't really want believe you could do more than one thing in those days, and I didn't want to be a dilettante, so I stopped directing and focused on shooting. Fortunately, Columbia University didn't have a cinematography department, which you know NYU and New School do, and um, I was shooting some student films, and finally I, I got a break in music videos. And uh, because I knew how to shoot handheld from the documentary.
0: Yeah. What, what jumped you as a DP? I mean, it just sounds like getting from gaffing to, and also I, just to go back a second, it must've been really frustrating to not be invited to see dailies when you're trying to light the thing and get a sense of how the work is looking.
1: Right. Right. (laughs) Before Mark offered his camera and Bobby offered grip and lighting. I did not really know I could be a cinematographer. I just thought I'd be a gaffer for a lot of years. And then when I started shooting, it was like, okay, this is it. And I don't have a plan B after all these decades, you know, even during the slow time. I remember I went to a career (coughs) counselor when I moved, quote, moved, because I still am a New York-based Partly, But when I moved to LA and had to start all over, and it was like, oh, man, oh, man. <laughs> uh, and uh, I remember this career concert I said, well, what's your plan B? And I said, I don't have one. And to this <laughs> day, I don't. I mean, I love guest lecturing. One year, I was a professor at AFI for advanced cinematography. But they and they let me miss half the semester because I had a movie. But it's just not where I want to be. I, I just I am a set rat. I just yeah. love shooting. And I still shoot documentaries. Uh, when I can, I'll shoot music videos. Uh, there aren't that many. We used to shoot in 35.
0: So, you jumped from, you got, you went from being a gaffer to being a DP because you got your hands on some equipment to start shooting to create that reel. That's and then cool. you yeah. got a couple jobs shooting docs as a DP because that was more what was available. And for yeah. whatever reasons at the time, yeah. Was it like women like yourself were trying to get some of these other jobs, but the the, I mean why document why was documentaries open but other well, things weren't
1: if you look yeah. at today's world although it is changing where are women directors or where have they been in documentaries where are the shooters? they've been in documentary because the stakes are low financially and the ironic thing I, I always felt it is so hard. To do a documentary, we have no crew. We're schlepping all the gear ourselves. Right. They have to raise all the money. It's you know, it's hard working in documentaries. And yet, because there were not such high stakes, there wasn't a network or a studio breathing down somebody's back on uh, a series or a feature. It has always been more open to women. And uh,
0: less approval, maybe like less corporate approval to get that, right. through. Is that part of it for too? Sure. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: So, to be storytellers, it's been a hard road for women in every category. And then, even the ones that broke through, let's say at Sundance, had the hardest time getting their second movies off the ground. And yet, documentaries, were just always easier. Public television, that's how a lot of us got hired. And uh, I worked on a lot of social issue documentaries back in the day and to this day and traveled a lot. I mean, one of the great documentary jobs I had was with my Aton. Um, I remember I got hired to go on the Amnesty International Human Rights Now rock and roll tour. This is in 1988. And I hadn't been shooting that long, but I had an Aton and I got hired. And we went around the world. There were these huge concerts that were put on to raise awareness of human rights. And it was Sting, Peter Gabriel, Yusu Indor from Senegal, Tracy Chapman, and Bruce Springsteen. And (laughs) so, yeah, for seven weeks of my life, we would zip across the world. I'm talking about Costa Rica, and then we'd go over to Greece, and then we'd go back to the States, and then it was wherever they were able to book these stadiums, big stadiums uh, in India, Japan, all over Africa. We were there twice, which is the last time I really had jet lagged because I had to learn how to function with these. Yeah, how much of the work
0: were you doing? What kind of crew did you have with you, or were you like Not kind it- of on an island with all those amazing right. illustrious talents, like shooting them doing stuff?
1: Right, and you know, I it was for HBO, and it just kind of disappeared. They made it into a three-hour special. So what would happen, we would go to a venue, say, at Nehru's studio in Delhi, and the crew that had all of the stage gear, lighting and sound, would work all night usually. And during the next day, I would go out with the amnesty people and shoot the local color. So, it
0: was,
1: uh, and yeah. with my aton. And then at night when we did the concerts, if there were any guests, which they always were in every city, like in, when we were in South America, there were the mothers of the disappeared. The sting was really supporting them from, from Chile. Uh, in Africa, Peter Gabriel was very big with the, uh, human rights there. And like when we came to Canada, Daniel Lanois performed. I remember when we were at Philadelphia, we had three stops in the States. Uh, In Philadelphia, Bono, and it was like this rotating circus. And every time there were people that weren't on the tour full-time, I got to shoot whoever was playing with the concert right. that night. And I have had this lens on my Aton. It's kind of incredible. It was like a, a 12 millimeter, which is like 24, 25, 12 to two fifty, <laughs> which was like a 500. So one person I could shoot these wide shots and then, you know, zoom in and pick off things and, Yeah, it was incredible. And the way they cut it later into the full concert, it looked like we had multi cameras. So my crew was the sound guy who sometimes had to load my mags and the (laughs) production manager also who had to load. And when the last stop was Buenos Aires, um, we switched to video cameras. So there were a lot of operators then. And, you know, it was standard death in 88. Right. I don't know what kind of – there were Sonys. I don't know what they were. But this is a really long time ago. So the other way – what happened was in New York, I would also get these little jobs – that were starting to shoot standard deaf. And I. Television
0: usually? Or? They were like PBS. I see, yeah.
1: Interviews. Yeah. And speak, and I knew how to shoot video. It wasn't called digital then, it was video.
0: Right, it was but videotape, was in, yeah.
1: Right. And <laughs> we're talking about focus for Sony. I would try to trick the cameras so it looked filmic, which meant as wide open as I could go and D's if I needed to, and as long a lens as I could and throw the backgrounds out of focus. Interesting. Uh, which- so
0: you did, you know, they have, the. there's this, <laughs> I, th- I forgot, I think it's called portrait mode on our iPhones now, That's that right. like just drops the back out of focus. And it's like, right. ooh, it looks like film. Like it's like, <laughs> and, I, and I remember because I came up learning about filmmaking when, you know, it was still videotape and film, like digital didn't wasn't a medium yet, really. And everybody who was teaching us would say things like, yeah, if you want to make videotape look more like film, you need to light it a certain way. So nobody ever said, like, just try to get stuff out of focus, because that was always the issue, that
1: there was yeah. too much depth right. of field. Exactly. And to this day, we still do that. And that's the beautiful thing about the Sony Venice, that the ND internal is by single stops. So uh, let's say I'm outside and as the light goes, without having to change glass, I can immediately just change the stop by one stop. And it's a beautiful, beautiful attribute that Claudia Miranda, I'm pretty sure, helped Sony with. I think that's who it was. Yeah. Uh, And it really has changed our lives. And, you know, why so many people love the Venice in addition yeah. to the reason. And,
0: and focus, I think autofocus in particular was always considered a flaw of a video machine that that setting would would, you know, jump around and make things look confusing. And when I was younger, they would say, like, always turn it off and learn to do it manually or pick what plane of focus you want to be on. But that's changed recently. Right. <laughs> like, in a way yeah. that's kind of amazing.
1: Well, with the FX series or the FS series, especially if you are doing verite or some improv, if it's narrative, yes, it locks in quickly. Now, I think it got a bad rep because it was always um, packaged together with auto exposure, and that is a bad Uh, thing. So when you remove it from auto, that part of the auto settings, it does have a great use. I can't say that I use it in narrative. But if I'm doing a doc with one of these cameras, and I'm in a place where I want to go from person to person quickly, it is a lifesaver. So I think it, it really does have a use. And focused in general, because I like to control again, using neutral density and shooting as wide open as I can is still something we do today. And I was able to trick these cameras back in the 80s and 90s to do just that. I don't even remember the models. Yeah. Uh, what they were before the F900. You know, we we'll love to cut this out, but it was like whatever the – equivalent was to the Panasonic SDX 900 standard def. I forget what the Sony number was, but.
0: Yeah, they um, were big, right? They were those big, (laughs) that's what I
1: Just the same, you know, it's a shoulder mount camera. I still like them. I really have to say that. I should send you a picture. Was that a
0: Yeah, send me anything. That would be well,
1: cool. there's a shot of me not that many years ago shooting behind the scenes on the red carpet at the Oscars. And my friend from New York had got always worked with Don Mitcher uh, every year putting uh-huh. pre-show together. And she said, find a camera. That shoots slow mo, and I found this Sony camera. And I'll get the model number, but there is a shot of me shooting handheld with like this.
0: Oh, that's cool.
1: Yeah, and it's some Sony camera. It was not that many years ago. I always shoot on my shoulder. That's how I learned. Yeah. So you know, it didn't bother me. You know, the F twenty three came out, the F thirty five, and. I would never handhold, but the F 65 is a great camera. And some of the schools are using them because Sony made this great camera that then uh, was so heavy that people didn't really take to it. And yet it's a really amazing camera.
0: You started shooting docs because that was the way in. You started getting more music videos right after that. And that was a big way. So many directors and cinematographers I speak to came up in the 90s. That was like a big, big way to get going. And then you did, you said you directed a feature. It got some really good notices. That was
1: a billion years ago. Yeah.
0: Right, right. But, But what got you sort of like... As, as I imagine it's always been a like even today as we said it's never as easy for a yeah. female DP or a woman in general to get the same opportunities but what sort of started breaking through where you were like okay now I'm shooting series I'm shooting features like when did you start earning getting to that point because and then you were I think you're the fourth woman to join the ASC mm-hmm. that so so you were kind of at the beginning of breaking a lot of these things what were the what can you tell us a little bit about how hard it was or just what were the steps?
1: It, I think I have blocked out how hard it is. <laughs> I really did. So the first film I ever shot, they were all 35 in those days, actually. Uh, Kiss Me a Killer was the first film I shot in 1991 in Los Angeles. The year before I shot a movie that kind of put me on the radar of people because I was I got an Independent Spirit Award nomination called uh, Ch- Yeah
0: that'll that helps
1: right Chain of Desire it's listed as ninety two but I think they it was shot in ninety one and Kiss Me a Killer as I said when I came to L A and had to start all over right after Chain of Desire there was a um, or producers strike in new york and many of us came out to the west coast because there was no work um i did do some work actually with uh the producer of chain of desire he did his own movie that had matthew mcconaughey and alfred molina but that was oh that was in 95 that was eight. (laughs) after? and was 35 so um Kiss Me a Killer was a Corman movie. That's another way people came up. Yes. It was, so <laughs> That's
0: legacy stuff.
1: <laughs> it, truly. And I did it. I remember it was three six-day weeks, 18 days. And coming out of New York, where I know Chain of Desire, which was not a large movie, we had 35 days. After Kiss Me a Killer... I said I am never shooting a movie in eighteen days, and six day weeks. Oh my God! Well, P.S. I've shot two movies in fifteen days <laughs> since then, and Maplethorpe, which was a period movie in New York, was nineteen days. Like most of the movies I've shot recently are nineteen, and I just you know just never say never because how
0: many pages a day? On some, on these, on these, I mean, I could do the math if I knew the scripts, but like, yeah, it seems like you know. it must be just brutal.
1: Right. But see also those movies, which were for friends came at a time when I was also shooting episodic television. So you really learn to shoot quickly. Uh, and yeah. also because I came out of independent cinema where we shot quickly, I could do television even though for a long time I only did the pilots because I didn't want to be committed so long to a series and not be able to do my friends' indie movies. Uh yeah. that's changed because now it's really hard to get indie movies off the ground. And we're very blessed to have the opportunities in Episodic. When you look at the television writers, directors, producers, they all came from movies because that's because they can't even get their big movies greenlit. So it's right. a wonderful cli- climate and I'm so grateful that I've had it. And you just in the,
0: la, in the last few years, P-Valley, uh, right. Station 19, it seems like you've been really busy in, in television. television. Yeah. And that, I imagine, like creatively, the difference between television and film is not quite what it was when you were making those right. decisions. In the 90s, it was so different. So different medium-wise, yeah. so different style-wise. Now it's... Nobody but, you know, gave you... a
1: shit how things looked back then. <laughs> right. I mean, when did that change? I mean, maybe... I mean, it was HBO. It was yeah. six feet under, you know? Yeah, that
0: that is a very cinematic-looking... Because even I think even The Sopranos is, is great, but it doesn't quite have that same...
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But even at the same time... You had a couple docs you've done in the last three years. Like you've been really busy, so you're not just you haven't ruled out any of the. You've been omnivorous in terms of the types of things you've shot this whole time. These are music docs, so it seems to combine that. Yeah. Um, You told us about a movie you shot on 16, but I'm sure, like for P Valley and for depending on you know who the where these things are going to live, there's a lot of requirements. Like it has to be on a certain. Digital format. What's the tip? Do you find mostly you're shooting Alexa and Sony uh, Venice these days, um, like, or do you get to get to film more often than just Maplethorpe?
1: P Valley was exactly two years ago. The we went with minis. That was 4K was not required. So how? Sony also was able to get into television again, was with the F 35 and the F 55 because they could shoot 4K, which Amazon and Netflix require. Right. So that kind of put Alexa out of business for a while. I owned a classic. <laughs> it's like I sold it for like nothing, but I <laughs> it had been on rental, so I, I broke even. But, um, you know, I've shot a f- couple red movies. One, The first one I ever shot was 2010. It had, the red one had just come out and the producers owned it. The director said, and it was a pretty big movie. It was with... Helen Hunt and Liev Schreiber and Brian Dennehy and Eddie Izzard, you know, and it was a red movie, red one, which was the slowest camera in the world. But wow, I, right? Yeah, <laughs> it was tough. And I remember meeting with Richard Levine, the director, the first time, um, and I said, "Are you sure you want to shoot Helen Hunt in the red one?" He said. no. <laughs> Do you want the job? I said, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so we did. Sometimes
0: you get no say in the matter. All you get to do is to say, are you sure? Yeah, <laughs> right.
1: And so I embraced it. And you know, um I knew I have shot many red films and projects since, and God, they have come a long way. And their you know partnership with Panavision and Jared Land I just have to say is an old 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 friend
0: Oh really that's funny
1: Well here's get... how I know him and again it's about Panasonic but I shot a little movie called November with the DVX100 people had been using a Sony camera that was it was pale And this was the first NTSC camera, 24P. So I won Sundance Best Dramatic Cinematography with this $2,500 camera. That's so
0: cool. I did not know that.
1: (laughs) And Jared Land, who now, of course, is the head of RED and is brilliant and the nicest person in the world, started DVX User. And I was interviewed by him. And then when the next camera came out, which is with P2 cameras, uh, cards. Oh, the P2
0: cards. Yes, I remember uh, that. I
1: remember doing the test with Jared. And then we have just remained friends. And I've been thrilled what's happened with Red and, you know, how they evolved and how gutsy it was for Jim Jannard to make this a computer camera that, you know, having said that a lot of water under the bridge, they didn't come to the ASC, which was really looked down upon that they didn't come for our advice. Um, but that was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Boy, are we jumping all over the place, but yeah, no, that's okay.
0: I mean, this is this is all the stuff that everyone's the most interested in, like what (laughs) you know, hearing about the cameras, hearing about what I mean. I didn't know I was gonna ask you, like, in our final minutes, like, I was gonna talk to you about your so much with indies, Mm -hmm. so much with festivals, yeah, and so much of our audience is that's the avenue they're familiar with or they dream right. about, you know, it's like, I'm going to get, if it's a short at a fest, if it's a, uh, you know, opportunities to play at these festivals, you started around a big kind of co-op and festival community, but you mentioned, you know, winning at Sundance, shooting on video, which is really cool.
1: And even, <laughs> I didn't I know mean, that. Yeah. It was, it was a little TV camera. Yeah. Uh, because we had no money and it was the, kind of film um, was with Courtney Cox. So there was a group in New York uh, that had this company called Indigent. And they made these films for $250,000. And many famous cinematographers, uh, Tammy Riker, did pieces of uh, pieces of April? I forget who starred now.
0: Oh, I remember pieces of April. I'm yeah. looking at this. It's November, was the name of. November
1: the movie. was. my- Yeah, I
0: remember pieces of April. Yeah,
1: but we were shooting mini DV, and yeah. when November premiered at Sundance, and we are in Eccles, which seats you know thousands, yes. three thousand people, I am cringing because the wide shots are so soft and you know it's like oh my god i can't you know and i came out of film you know 35 being projected at sundance yes. many of the times but uh the jury liked what i did with the color i mean <laughs> i totally baked everything in and i want to talk about baking the color in for a second because yeah does- i it- want to
0: hear like tell me about that but just tell me in general like how do you use these you you jump from mediums but there's something that people are responding to every time, even if it's a super cheap, super low budget. Like, so yeah, tell me about that part of it or any other strategies.
1: Well, I just have to say that it doesn't matter what you're shooting with. If you are in the moment looking at the natural light, or if you are working with a director and you have this great plan for the visuals that you, you, uh, design from beginning to end. uh, It doesn't matter what you're working with, especially today. If you can think about when I started, we had to have processing and then editing. And we had reels that were sent out to try to get work. And uh, I had somebody send out my Reels. This was again when I was trying to get narrative, they were three quarter being sent around. That's what people looked at our reels on. And this that's guy, where they're
0: called reels today, even though they're like YouTube clips.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And one inch early HD that, wow, well, was recorded on one inch. Um, but anyway, this guy who was sending my reels out would put a little piece of paper in the little three-quarter cassette, a little like tab and send my reel out one with Nancy Schreiber, the other one with NJ Schreiber. And he said that the ones that had the initials didn't have the little piece of paper left, but the other ones, because people returned them, they were expensive with my name as a woman, he said, people just, Couldn't get it. So there was a lot of disappointment, but I just don't have and never did and never will have a plan B. And I was (laughs) determined. So now when we started shooting video, you would bake in your color. And even when I remember when the Sony F3 came out and we were could shoot log. And I was working for a company that had bought some F3s. And these are not novice filmmakers. This was John Affnett, if you look him up. I mean, yeah, he's yeah, oh, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And Rodrigo Garcia. It was their company doing these little shorts on the F3. And I remember the editor and I, you know, I shot some... Uh, the first day uh, with log. And they were like, what's wrong? With the dailies, they're all flat and there's no color. And it's like, what? <laughs> no, seriously. And this was what year? That was 2012 when the F—I I think about when the F3 came out, it was like, all you have to do is put, you know, a lot on it. What's a lot? You know, these people couldn't get It so I did have to bake my own color in. Now, having said that, I had done that on November with the mini DV because I was screwing up the white balance. That's how I got the color, the extreme green and the extreme blue.
0: Interesting. Uh, And so you you screwed up the white balance on purpose purpose. to create.
1: That's, wow. And that's how I got that award, because I just took creative license with, you know. What
0: Tell me about what you did with the, like, so you would white balance to something that was a different color and then yeah. you'd shoot it. Yeah. And, like, and you just decided, like, I'm going to do that on every scene and I'm going to have right. a plan for, like, what scenes are going to be what color.
1: Right. And fortunately, for the most part, Greg Harrison, the director, didn't change his mine. There was one scene in the therapist's office, I remember, because it was in these three sections. One was very green. If you look at November, we were shooting in this a bodega. We were shooting in a bodega, and it had fluorescence. So when Greg and I uh. went to scout, uh, we saw these fluorescence. I white balanced the camera, so it came pretty monochromatically green and it's very dramatic and he loved it and uh, we kept doing that with there was a blue section and a gold section well one of the sections with this therapist's office he wanted to make neutral and it was hard with the. yeah i was gonna say that would be
0: right because that because the the audience's eye isn't trained to see that image from that tape as neutral, right? Right. It's well, we that.
1: had to really try in color grading to get it neutral. And I see it. Nobody else does. But it was like, oh, God, thank God, Gray, you didn't change anything else because it was a struggle. And, you know, we did a professional color grading on that film. Pretty sure it was at Laser Pacific.
0: So did you take it, it – what did you finish it on then? Because like, you shoot it on the DV – that tape. What was the... HD. Yeah, so you have to blow it up.
1: We did. But
0: the color choices are what you think carried the day for the film.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, Yeah. and that's what made it stand out plus all those tricks I learned not shooting with a, a deep stop so as wide open as I could and uh, longish lenses. Again, the wide shots do fall apart in mini DV, and I had to get some wide shots.
0: But you, those, those, You're saying those, those things you learned about trying to make video look a little more filmic back from way when you back, were doing. yeah, exactly. To try and get something to fall off in the distance.
1: And so, in about 2013, I started shooting a documentary called Eva Hess, H-E-S-S-E. She was an artist in New York City, the only woman at that time pretty much in the scene where all these abstract expressionist painters were. She was accepted there, and nobody knows her. uh, Interesting. Except Her work's very valuable now. So it was a documentary that uh, some people I'd met were doing. And we started on the F3. And it took so long for them to raise money. The film, I think, we uh, finished in 2016. So I started on the F3. Then I went to the F5. We were shooting log the whole time and finally yeah. finished in the F fifty five. So it was three camera generations of Sonys to do that wow. one documentary.
0: And so as you went and sort of adjusted, you did you find that the trade-off between the Sony models was smooth?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, shooting log again, I had total control when we came to color.
0: You've worked with limitations and they've helped you create looks like they've, be, you've, it sounds like you've used the limitations consistently to be like what your palette's going to be. So when you get to these situations now where these cameras are so powerful and crisp, and I've heard a lot of DPs talk about, well, it's the glass I choose.
1: That's true. Yeah. We use vintage lenses. Now there's a beautiful marriage of Zeiss, newer lenses with the uh, Venice probably I'll use on this Amazon. I use Zeiss lenses on the Maplethorpe film. I use Super Speeds, and huh. they're really old, and yeah. a lot of people are using them. You know, when I started shooting movies after Kiss Me a Killer, I was a Panavision girl. I could afford the Primo Zooms, but I couldn't afford a whole Primo package of primes, and I get right. the super speeds, which were considered so inferior. But, you know, I, we were able to make them cut well, depending on, you know, filtration and, you know, contrast and post. Um, and it's so funny how that things have changed now. And right.
0: Now they would be a value in a way they weren't, right, right? Because of, yeah, they create character.
1: There are these lenses now um, that. Zeiss has made and uh, people are using them a lot with the Vence, uh, that were are purposely screwed up to have the characteristics of vintage lenses. So they're right. Sony the Zeiss Supremes. Anyway, you can get the characteristics that you don't always get with the super super sharp newer lenses that a lot of the manufacturers are uh, coming out with. So, so it sort of
0: flipped and that's where you find some of the character in your image.
1: Yeah. So uh, I use ultra speeds, you know, we use super ball tars. We use everything from way back and embrace the human imperfections in a technical area. I mean, we yeah. don't want it to be, necessarily perfect and you know now 8k oh my god (laughs) Uh, so for the longest time i just have to admit so i had this sony tv here xbr standard def it was top of the line and you know two it was like a component thing and people would come over this is when flat screens were already around (laughs) They would look at my four by three TV, but we'd watch something and they'd say, God, people really look good because (laughs) it's softer. Well, of course, I had to like dump that. Uh, You know, thank God the new TVs, there's filmmaker settings, you know, and there's. You know how many places do I go where everyone has their TV on? You know sports. The sport? Right. Look, <laughs> and it's like you no. Know, it's oh, preset my God. for the
0: NFL settings, and That's then everybody's right. who's making these shows and these movies and trying to shoot them. One thing I want to mention again is because you were a gaffer, we haven't really talked about lighting that yeah. much. And lighting for video is completely different. And I and I think that you know I I'm curious how I'm sure you're lighting your approach to lighting has changed over the years but again i'm just curious mm-hmm. today with the tech being what it is with the cameras that are available the powers that they have like yeah. do you how do you approach do you do you, have you cons- been consistent with your lighting approach have yeah, do you it's tailor not
1: it to the- any different the big difference that i found on maplethorpe in 2017 Stocks are so slow, you needed a shitload of light. Right. (laughs) We are so used to, you know, 800 being the base, you know, 1600, you know, we're shooting, our ISOs are like off the chart. So it's a whole other world, and uh, which is another reason, you know, NDs are so important. You know, you don't always change the ISO settings. You might just put NDs in so you're consistent with your ISO. You know, obviously outdoors, I do change it. But the lighting hasn't changed. You just have to be careful that you want it soft. People were lighting so harshly in early days of video. There was no reason to. I remember... In those early days shooting interviews, this is back in New York when I was shooting video, and on my long lens, and sometimes we would even put these single nets behind the subject to throw it out even more out of focus in the background that you couldn't read. But I remember looking up, because I was—I would use a monitor and I'd look with my eyes and I swear it looked like I didn't have any light on And that's how it is sometimes today. It's like, you have to train your eye to look at how natural light looks and use it. And there's been this whole issue about independent films and HDR, because we spend a lot of time trying to get black black work on our shadows. We don't want to see everything. Maybe we want a sky to burn out and not see what's going on up there. Now, it's fine if you can get a grade, a a separate grade for HDR, but a lot of the independent films can't afford. So it's been very tricky. It's like, wait, why am I seeing all that shit in the shadow area? You know, sometimes we want it. But so HDR is a whole other topic uh that's being yeah. embraced uh and now at least there are ways that we in independent films can get a good transfer without ruining our intentions of light and shade and i know i've gotten totally off lighting but no 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 that amazing. no
0: i mean coming back to color and how you create the color palette i mean right you know it's got to be hd we talk about hdr tvs seemingly as being as important if not more than how many k's just because that range of color right yeah but it puts a pressure changes the way people shoot but you've weathered so many changes and seem to feel like you said you've you're evidence that you that the medium isn't as important as like how it's how you're using it
1: right soft is the name of the game large soft sources we wouldn't have uh LEDs have changed,
0: uh, yeah,
1: so much. Everything is controlled on our iPads. Uh, right. When I did P Valley, oh God, it was so wonderful to use these programmable LEDs. We could change color in, in a second, and right. the gel, the savings in gels, tremendous. Not that I don't use tungsten, uh, not that I do, and I certainly still use large tungsten or HMIs, you know, there's a use yeah. for all of it. But uh, LEDs certainly embrace our need to have, be, have a green world. And yet I remember uh, I had been using a lot of LEDs and I went to New York to do this ABC series called The Family. We were shooting at the Silver Cup and I would look up in the ceiling and it is all mole richardson tungsten and we were already using i remember we could only afford two two airy sky panels that was it and uh you you know now fortunately people have made a move to be greener and to use more uh, leds and uh, the color is more consistent now because when they first came out they, it wasn't that way. So you had to be careful with your color.
0: There's so many choices, though. Once you have that programmable iPad feature, it's like you can do so much. You have to be careful about your decisions. Whereas before, right. you're limited by what's available to you. And time.
1: You, know? like, you have to get a ladder in and, you know.
0: <laughs> right. And regel it. Yeah. You can't just hit a button. Yeah. I mean, I think that in some ways, that creative paralysis can take place because. You cannot you can choose so many different things. But had
1: we had that on November <laughs> instead of my screw it's Just up white balance with, like <laughs> it's with gels. Because i had added gels to like the blue sec blue section. I had to add blue gels to some of the lights. Right. You know, you just now it's so easy. So I we have been all over the maps. Hopefully yes, I- it makes some sense and Focus, have we talked about focus at all? But
0: yes, no, we did. And okay. we, co- I, I, I took us off topic there because we talked about it. I, I mean, this has been extremely uh, valuable. I really appreciate it. And we will, I'm looking forward to getting it out there. Um, I, we could go on, I could go on, but I want, I'm gonna let you go.
1: Thank you. And it's great talking to you. And thank you for yes. doing this too. Of and course. uh, thank you. Yeah, it's just a great time. And for everybody out there, if you don't have a plan B, like, sure, you have to figure out a way to pay the rent, which is why I did documentaries or whatever, you know. But if you really, really want to be a cinematographer, you will find a way because there's so many opportunities today with the streaming services and, you know. Yeah. When I grew up, there was four networks, three in PBS. (laughs) It's like, oh my God.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Nancy for coming on. This Week in No Film School has been Focus Week, presented by Sony. It has been all about focus. And the Sony Cinema line as well, and how they handle focus and autofocus. The FX9, FX6, and FX3. Some very cool stuff going on with all of those. And we are covering it all from a number of different angles. So check it all out at NoFilmSchool.com, and you'll see Focus Week all over the homepage and all over the scroll. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook follow us on Instagram, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much.